The world rightly thinks we're crazy because they don't understand where this is coming from or where it is leading. Jesus is giving us good teaching that will lead us all the way to his kingdom. This is Beholding Christ, and I'm Matt Williams, your host. Welcome to part two of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom, taken from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew by Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul is moving us through the introductory part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes over the next several weeks. Since we're just beginning the journey into the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Paul is joining us to help get things started. So, Pastor Paul, first off, welcome to Beholding Christ. Tell us how you came to decide on the program's new name. Thanks, Matt. I'm relatively new as host teacher of the program. The name really is taken from a principle in Scripture where we see that we become what we worship. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about beholding the Lord Jesus so as to become like him. My desire is that I would always be setting forth Christ so that our listeners can be more like him. Now, about the journey that we're about to begin covering the Beatitudes, they're a significant part of the Sermon on the Mount. They begin Jesus' sermon there, and they are pronouncements of what it looks like to be one of his disciples. For example, when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he's teaching not the means by which we become a disciple, but what is one of the evidences that we do belong to him. As we behold Christ, we then start to exhibit Christ-like meekness. The Beatitudes instruct us that we cannot accomplish these without the Spirit of Christ in us. Thanks, Pastor Paul. We have lots to look forward to over the next month. Here's part two of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom. Long before Moses was a teacher, he was a redeemer. It is exactly the same with Christ. Before he gives these commands, he has shown himself to be a sufficient savior. Just a few weeks prior, we thought about the effectual call of those fishermen. He utterly transformed their hearts with a word. He saved them. He did not give to them a law to obey prior to that effectual call. He is a savior before he is a teacher. Now, a few weeks prior, as we thought about that reality, I said to you, if you should ever hear an exhortation to follow Jesus' instruction, Apart from understanding him first to be a savior, that is the most deadly sermon you would ever hear. If you are ever exhorted to heed the teachings of Christ without first and foremost understanding that he comes to save, that sermon will be to you condemnation. The teachings of Christ will only condemn you if you have not first found him to be a savior. 
And you need to be honest with yourself and decide whether you have bypassed Jesus as a savior and only ever found him to be a good teacher. Only you can answer that question. Have you taken him in to be someone who has made a payment for your sin? If you have not, there is no eternal value in following his good and right teaching. But that principle applies for Christians also. Christians are those that have found Christ to be a savior who have acknowledged that they have a debt of sin that they cannot pay before a holy God, that they can do nothing to make themselves right with their creator, but they found in Jesus someone who has done everything. A Christian is someone who has put their faith in Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection as a sufficient payment for their sin. A Christian needs to be someone who is doing that each and every day. Because the grace that comes from seeing Jesus as a savior is the grace that enables you to obey his commands. Let me say that again. It is critically important for you, un- you to understand the grace that comes from seeing Christ for who he truly is, a savior who has made a payment for sin, the grace that comes and is ministered to your heart through the truth of the gospel is the means by which you obey the commands of scripture. I have found so often that Christians are pretty good at understanding the need and the place of God's grace as it relates to their justification. Christians can normally articulate their need for grace as it relates to their right standing with God. And in the same breath, they have not understood very well at all the need for God's grace in their perseverance. All too often, the reality of the Christian's existence is that they have made an appeal to Christ at the point of salvation. They have received the free gift of eternal life, of sins forgiven, of right standing before God. They see and understand their need for his grace that comes through the gospel of Christ in that moment. And then they set off on the race towards the finish line. And as they do so, they leave Christ the Savior behind. And they wake up and with good intentions, they strive every day to obey the commands of Scripture. But they are doing it in their own strength. Apart from a manifestation of the grace of the gospel afresh in their hearts. Jesus, long before he was a teacher, was a redeemer, and he needs to be a redeemer to you every single day. You cannot afford to lose sight of the glory of Christ as a savior every single day. If you do the commands that he issues to you, which are good and right and for your flourishing, will become to you a burden. 
This is why so many Christians are walking the Christian walk. And externally, it looks like they're living a life of obedience, and yet they lack all joy. Because they are not fueled by God's grace on a daily basis. They know and they understand what is expected of them as disciples of the Lord Jesus. But because they are not taking in Christ as a savior, the commands are now heavy on their soul. This is why so many Christians are walking what it seems to be a steadfast path of obedience. And yet they lack all zeal for the things of the Lord. They lack all zeal for the work of the ministry. They lack all zeal to race towards the commands of Scripture because they are walking without a manifestation each and every day of God's grace as it is found in the gospel. You can never get beyond the gospel. If you have been walking with Jesus for two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years, you need to feast upon the gospel. Your utmost priority every single morning needs to be to rise up, to open this book, and to see Christ. You have to find Christ and behold his glory as the one that has made a payment for your sin. And I would encourage you, Lord, pray. Pray to God that he would refresh your heart this morning with the truth of the gospel. Because in reality, we are so fickle towards eternally significant truth. We are so easily distracted by the cares of the world. And I don't hold it against you that you would say in all honesty, I just struggle in the morning and with all that is going on and with all the trials that God has given to me, I struggle to get excited about Christ. So pray God, would you enliven my heart afresh this morning to see the beauty of my Savior, that he has made a payment for my sin, that I am innocent before you, clothed with his righteousness, that your love is set upon me and I'm destined for eternity because of his life. And then would you read, And would you see Christ as a savior before you see him as your teacher? Sometimes ask people, what is the Lord doing in your life today? Not what has he done. I would love to hear your testimony of salvation. But tell me, what is he doing in your life today? And if it is hard for you to answer that question, If you draw a blank and you can't quite explain, it may well be because you are not feasting upon the grace of the gospel as a daily reality, but simply in your own strength, striving to obey the commands of Scripture. Jesus went up on the mountain in Moses-like fashion as our Savior, ready then to become our teacher. And so we move on now to the second point. What does this context, these two verses, what does it teach us about the sermon itself? There are many mountains in the Old Testament, not just Sinai. 
And again, if Matthew is leaning into that theme of mountains, the place where God reveals himself and advances redemptive history, it is reasonable to understand that with perhaps Sinai foremost, there are other mountains in view as Matthew records these details. The very first mountain in the Bible is actually found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You won't find the word mountain, but it is reasonable to conclude that Eden was high up, a lofty place. Culturally, the cultural context into which Moses is writing those first few chapters of Scripture is one wherein gods were understood to have their dwelling place on top of mountains. That was the normal understanding that the mountains were places where gods dwelt. And Moses offers a polemic showing all who would care to read the one true God. And it seems that his dwelling place, Eden, is high up on a mountain. And that's why when you get to chapters like Isaiah 28, the prophet speaks so polemic against the king of Tyre. And he does so in very metaphorical terms, speaking against the king of Tyre in a way as if he were Satan being expelled from the garden. And in that chapter, Isaiah says, inspired scripture, you were cast out down from the mountain of the Lord. It's almost a poetic commentary of what happened in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so, as Adam and Eve transgress and they're expelled east of Eden, at the same time, it would seem, they were expelled down the mountain. They had been privileged to dwell on top of the mountain with God. But their sin means now they're forced to descend. And it's fascinating, as you read through the book of Genesis, there is a motif created of traveling east, And traveling down, you go east of Eden and then Cain sins and he's banished further east of Eden. And there are other episodes where people travel east and all the while when they travel down, it is never construed as a positive movement. And the book ends all the way down in Egypt, far away from the promised land. Then we get to the book of Exodus and we come across Mount Sinai. Taken together with the Exodus event, it is the natural end point of God's saving work for his people. He redeems them from slavery out of Egypt. He doesn't leave them in the wilderness. He takes them out of Egypt and he delivers them to a dwelling place, namely a mountain. And he shows them in so doing that he is moving redemptive history forward. You see, after that first transgression in Genesis chapter 3, there is a sense in which the rest of redemptive history can be understood as humanity striving to get back up the mountain. We understand we want to be with God. We want to be dwelling with him once as we once were. And so all throughout the Bible, we see this striving to get back up the mountain and Sinai takes on its redemptive significance because God is saying, I am moving you in that direction. The psalmist asks exactly the right question when he says, who can ascend your holy hill? 
He's asking a, a question of enormous theological significance. It is so entrenched in their way of thinking. The Israelites understood the goal. They understood where they had come from and where they wanted to be. And so the psalmist rightly says, who can be with you up there? That's where we all want to be, up the mountain. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Then you get to the prophets. You get to a book like Jonah. And you're saying to me, Jonah has nothing to do with mountains. He goes to sea and then he gets swallowed by a fish. But you have to pay attention to the details. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah responds to God in prayer and he says, you have caused me to come down to the foot of the mountain. Jonah is having a really bad day at the office. He's just been swallowed by a fish. But he doesn't say to God, you caused me to be swallowed by a fish. He puts it in poetical and metaphorical terms. You have caused me to descend to the foot of the mountain because that is how he is understanding his relationship with God. And then you get to a book like Isaiah. And it seems chapter after chapter after chapter, Isaiah keeps taking us back to the mountain. He is now projecting forward. Not so much looking back, but projecting forward as the prophets did, anticipating the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth. And he does so with the holy mountain of the Lord at the center. And so his vision in chapter 6 sees the throne of the Lord high and lifted up above all other mountains. And in chapter 2, the prophet says there is coming a day After these things pass, there is coming a day when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established above all other mountains. And the nations will come and they will say to each other in that day, let us go up to the mountain. They will stream up the mountain and they will say, let us go up there. Why? So that the Lord will teach us his law. There is a desire from the nations to learn the law of the Lord. Because, Isaiah says, chapter 2, from there a law will go out, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah gets it. He is reaching forward and showing us a glorious vision of how redemptive history will culminate. Now what does all of this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus knew what he was doing when he went up on the mountain to give his law. Jesus was making a theological statement of profound significance when he went up on the mountain to teach his disciples. He is indicating, he is raising a flag He's putting a marker in the ground. He's putting a signal for all that would read these words. I am moving you towards the eschatological reality of Isaiah chapter 2. As well as many other chapters in the Old Testament, Jesus is making a statement. I am the one that you need to cling to, and my word is the word that you need to listen to. Because my teaching is that which will get you to that kingdom. He is not, Jesus is not 
in any way suggesting that what he is doing here represents the fulfillment of the expectation that is established in chapters like Isaiah 2. Jesus knows that this is not the time for fulfillment, but what he is doing is signaling. He is putting a big arrow in redemptive history saying we're moving in the right direction and the way that you get there is through me, clinging to my teaching. And so you see, when you understand the reality of Jesus ascending the mountain, the forward-looking significance, this fundamentally changes how you read his words. Three chapters of teaching, Jesus is not intending to create a burden for us. Three chapters of weighty, heavy commands that are to be to us light. Light in large measure because we are being fueled by the saving grace of the gospel every day. We find Jesus to be a savior before he is a teacher. But light also because we understand that these are the words that will lead us home. These are the words that will lead us to glory. How will I make it to that last day? The question of perseverance comes into view very quickly when you start to take seriously what Jesus says in this sermon. How will I make sure that I keep treading out a path of obedience and I don't falter and I don't defect and I don't turn along the way? You understand that through these words, Jesus will get you home. When he says to you, love your enemies, he's not intending to create a burden for you. This is otherworldly teaching. You don't read this in other world religions. Love your enemies and pray for them. No one ever said that. When he says, turn the other cheek, you were just Struck in the face, how do you respond? Not with anger, not with malice. You turn the other cheek to be struck another time. The world rightly thinks we're crazy because they don't understand where this is coming from or where it is leading. Jesus is giving us good teaching that will lead us all the way to his kingdom. I would encourage you. As you think about this sermon, I would encourage you to be reading this sermon as we embark upon it for weeks and months ahead now. Be reading this sermon. And each and every time you open your Bible, just minister to your own heart the truth that Jesus is my Savior. He has paid for my sins. And through this word, He intends to lead me home. You're listening to Beholding Christ. Pastor Paul's message yesterday included wisdom on mountains in Holy Scripture. We learned that Matthew, one of the twelve, was showing his Jewish readers that Christ was like Moses, who rescued his people from Egypt and gave the Ten Commandments on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Christ, however, was greater than Moses 
because he came to rescue his own from sin and empower them into eternal life. And like Moses, Christ was a teacher. But if you don't believe he died to make your payment for your sin, it is of no value for you to follow his teachings. If you'd like to learn more about following Christ, visit our new website, beholdingchrist.org, beholdingchrist.org. Select Contact Us on the homepage, and there we'll connect you with the caring people of Bethany Bible Church. Beholding Christ is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow we continue in our series with part three of The Beatitudes, more about how to flourish as true seekers of Christ's kingdom. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.